Welcome. I'm very grateful to be here in sunny Bradford. <laughs> Not what I expected. going to be introduced. Hello and welcome to the Bradford Literature Festival in association with the Provident Financial Group. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. It's Rumi and the Mystery of Murder. Um, uh, what? <laughs> you mean this. <laughs> okay, um, it, it's wrong on my sheet, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> house rules. You can't have your phones on you, but if you can turn them to silence, we are on Facebook and Twitter, at Bradford Literature Festival, and has, hashtag Bradford Literature Festival. Uh, without any further ado, I'll pass it over to the panel. <laughs> Thank you. Assalamu <laughs> <laughs> alaikum. Um, thank you for coming. Rumi and the mystery of being human is the topic. And there are two reasons why I suggested this topic. The first is that the tradition that I've walked for some decades now speaks primarily about becoming a human being. My first <clears throat> spiritual teacher, or in this tradition, said, you know, it takes some work to become human. And this is a theme that is very strong, particularly in Anatolian spirituality, but also in Sufism itself. So we see humanness as something to be attained. It's, it's a work in progress. The second reason is a more contemporary issue, and that is we are on the threshold of what some people are proposing as the post-human era. There is a whole movement known as transhumanism, and it is based on profound metaphysical misunderstandings. And I think that people from spiritual traditions need to step forward at this time and really um, consider what humanness really is and why we are more than just <clears throat> information that can be downloaded into a computer that will live eternally. You know, that's the plan. Google's plan is to hack humanity and to be able to take what's in your brain and make it live forever. And they're not kidding. But What is this humanness that we're considering? And of course, Rumi, who has been a source of wisdom that has guided uh, our lives in a major way, has a lot to say about this. But briefly, <coughs> let's say that there are simultaneously two realms of reality. One realm is being investigated by science and mathematics. It's the realm of the senses. And even quantum physics and the most cutting-edge science, while it may give us metaphors that seem very mystical and spiritual, are still really um, talking about a physical reality, an energetic reality, that 
has little to do with the inner life of the human being. So we have that reality. We also have the reality of the human heart, the inner life of the human being, which is a qualitative reality and a, and a realm of values and relationships. And the instrument for this reality is the human heart. And <clears throat> so far the human heart has not been reproduced in any laboratory. Um, so, this is, we're at a very critical time in the history of humanity because literally as virtual reality is geared up and as people find, spend more and more of their time in virtual realities, what is being discovered through studies is that more and more human attributes are shutting down. Our capacity for empathy and relationship is diminishing. People are becoming dissociated and depersonalized the more they live in that virtual reality. So this is the background for today's talk. <laughs> but we're also going to come to Rumi. And much of this is just going to be sharing with you some of our translations. Uh, and we use the language of poetry because it is the language of the soul. To talk about these realities of the inner life of the spiritual universe, we can't speak of them directly. If we do, it sounds like cliches and truisms. The most effective way to touch these realities is through the language of poetry. Because poetry is, number one, it's intensified language. Number two, it is a, a practice of saying one thing and meaning another. Poetry. So we're going to start. We're going to begin the journey with some, let's say, warnings from our master, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. And he says to us, O tribe, more beautiful than moonlight, how can you tolerate your muddy existence? You who have drowned yourself in the tavern, wake up. It is day. Why are you asleep? In this world are so many filled with spirit like Jesus. How could it also be filled with so many false prophets? How could it be filled with heart-darkening brine when the water skin of the universe is brimming with such pure water? When the water skin of the universe is brimming with such pure water. Elsewhere in his discourses, Rumi says that <clears throat> You may experience yourself as murky, muddy water, but you are not that murkiness. You are the pure water. We have a word for this in Islam. It is fitra, your pure nature. And every prophet has come to this world to remind us that we are that pure water, that we are not the murkiness or the muddiness.
So what do we do? How do we begin the journey? He tells us, if you desire the self, the real self, get out of the self. Leave the shallow stream behind and flow into the river deep and wide. Don't be an ox pulling the wheel of the plow. Turn with the stars that wheel above you. Rumi describes the ego as an inch-deep river in which we drown. So he's telling us the way is to know ourselves. The remedy is in the poison. In other words, the self is the poison, but it's also the remedy. If we can make that journey deep into the core of our being, to the very essence of our self. He says, you may know the value of every article of merchandise, but if you don't know the value of your own soul, it's all foolishness. You've come to know the fortunate and the inauspicious stars, but you don't know whether you yourself are fortunate or unlucky. This, this is the essence of all knowledge, that you should know who you will be when the day of reckoning arrives. So what can be attained and what is the highest attainment for a human being? And what does our society tell us about this? You know, Rumi is known for being loving and loving everyone. But he says, I spent some time around people, but fidelity I neither saw nor smelled in them. It's better to conceal ourselves from the eyes of the people, like water in iron and fire in stone. This project of knowing ourselves, of becoming a human being. This is not a self-help project. This is not a project of pop psychology. This is a totally God-centered work. Human being is com completed, according to Rumi and the Sufi mystics, completed only and through the grace and guidance of the divine. Rumi says, whoever sees you and doesn't smile, whose jaw doesn't drop with awe, whose qualities fail to increase in a thousand ways, can only be the mortar and bricks of a prison. So there is this amazement in Rumi, this intoxication with the beauty of God and with an awareness of our profound need for the divine 
and above all, that the divine is the agency of transformation. Rumi is all about transformation and also about perception. But he has a beautiful sense of our human qualities and our potential. He's actually very hopeful for us. He says, have the aspiration of a falcon and the pride of a leopard. At the time of the hunt, be graceful and be victorious in the battle. Don't get too involved with the nightingale and the peacock. One is all words and the other all colors. I think this next one is about his relationship with Shams, his mentor, his beloved friend, but it might as well just be about God. Shams' importance to Rumi was virtually equal to God. He wishes me to get out of myself. He wishes me to sit in freedom. I was constantly involved with ambition and now he tells me to break all the chains. It's a deep and extraordinary relationship with the infinite that he must have experienced when he said, to us a different language has been given and a place besides heaven and hell. Those whose hearts are free have a different soul, a pure jewel excavated from a different mine. This is reminiscent of the words of Rabia. To us a different language has been given and a place besides heaven and hell. Who said she was walking through the streets of Baghdad with a bucket and a torch. And uh, she said, I'm going to, what are you doing Rabia? She said, I'm going to uh, douse the flames of hell with this bucket and I'm going to set fire to heaven. want God and God alone. And that divine, infinite reality has a special relationship to human beings. This next one is a little bit subtle. Abundance is seeking beggars and the poor. Got that? Abundance is seeking beggars and the poor, just as beauty seeks a mirror. Beggars, then, are the mirrors for God's abundance. And they that are with God are united with absolute abundance. I'm reminded of another 
few verses of his when he says, water says to the dirty, come. And the dirty one says, but I'm, I'm so ashamed. Water says, how will you be washed clean without me? So you see this relationship. How poetry can describe something even a child could understand but need, and needs to know. Oh, I love this one. I actually considered putting this one on a t-shirt, but I thought it was a bit much. <laughs> no mirror ever became iron again. You know, in the old days, mirrors were made of polished iron. No mirror ever became iron again. No bread ever became wheat. No ripened grape, grape ever became sour fruit. Mature yourself and be secure from a change for the worse. Become light. This is the story of transformation. <coughs> Sufis use the word maturity and they don't mean getting old. But we're full of excuses. We have other preoccupations. Someone says, I can't help feeding my family. I have to work so hard to earn a living. He can do without God, but not without food. He can do without religion, but not without idols. Where is someone who will say, if I eat bread without awareness of God, I will choke? But Rumi experienced uh, such a transformation that he went from being a very knowledgeable professor and actually a very well-trained mystic. You know, he was a mystic before he met Shams. He had done several 40-day retreats under the guidance of masters his father had arranged for him. So he was no amateur at spirituality. He was not, just, he was not a pedant. But Shams came and something extraordinary happened to him. It was a, uh, an explosion of love into this world such as may have never happened before and which is an example for all of us because if even one person, one human being attains it, in some sense it's there for all of us to attain. Rumi speaking to himself, I think. No, well, it's a voice maybe of Shams or of God. You are an ascetic and I turned you into a singer. You were mute, and I turned you into a bard. Within the universe, no one knew your name nor any sign of you. I sat you down and made you a revealer of secrets. Or this one, 
This is the result, this is the ripened fruit on the tree of Sufi spirituality. The dervish who offers the secrets of the universe gives away a kingdom in every moment. He doesn't beg for bread on the street. A dervish bestows life. could say that all of Rumi's teaching is a teaching of the knowledge of love. It's not a teaching about mm, uh, it's not a sublimated romanticism it is not uh, mystical sensuality uh, it is not indulgence in ecstasy it is about the incredible power of love and a love that is beyond emotion, a love beyond sadness and joy, to a love that created the universe, guides the universe, and is the end of all of existence. That love to transform every stage of life, every particle of the universe, by love, the bitter becomes sweet. By love, copper becomes gold. By love, the dregs become clear. By love, the dead become living. By love, the king becomes a slave. From knowledge, love grows, has stupidity, ever place someone on such a throne? So all of Rumi is about the knowledge of love. He says that uh, you, you, love cannot mature, love cannot uh, reach its, its hawk, its true reality, without proper knowledge, because without that knowledge we don't even know what is worthy of our love. We fall for the imitations of love. People have asked me in the past, well, how do you define love? You know, the word is used in so many ways. Even Rumi said, when I tried to, to write about love, the, the tip of my pen broke. When I tried to talk about it, I felt like a donkey slipping on a muddy trail. Only love can explain the mysteries of being, of love and of being a lover. Another way to understand this is that in order to define or explain love truly, you need something more comprehensive, something subtler, outside of it, with which to explain it. But if you look to the experiences of our lives and what we truly value, and now I'm back to the realm of the heart, uh, instrument of valuation, an instrument to perceive the universe qualitatively. When we come back to the experiences of the heart and what, what truly matters to us, especially imagine yourself at the end of your life, which could be any moment, by the way. What will be truly of value 
at that moment of the last breath. These will be the experiences of love. It will not be your degrees, your wealth, your looks, your, even your, what's in your brain. Point is, you cannot explain love because love is the final explanation of everything. It's why we're here. It's what the spiritual journey is about. It is what this existence is about. But Rumi has sometimes very charming ways of, of talking about love, uh, especially the lover. And uh, let's see if I can find what I'm looking for. I like this one. By the way, I recommend this little book. We're very proud of this book called The Pocket Rumi, where we were able to gather up some of the best uh, selections from a vast amount of work. It's portable. The intellectual is always showing off. The lover is always getting lost. The intellectual runs away afraid of drowning. The whole business of love is to drown in the ocean. Intellectuals plan their vacations. Lovers are ashamed to rest. The lover is always alone, even surrounded with people, like water and oil. She or he remains apart. And the man who goes to the trouble of giving advice to a lover gets nothing. He's mocked by passion. Love is like musk. It attracts attention. Love is a tree. And lovers are its shade. And Rumi learned this love, above all, through his relationship with Shams. And he must have faced criticism within his own community uh, and skepticism, because Shams was not an easily likable person. He, he, uh, he did not cater to hypocrisy or conventional opinions. Rumi says, I could reach great heights with your love and with longing for you I will increase a hundredfold. They ask, why are you circling him? Oh, ignorance, I am circling myself. Oh, pure people who wander the world, amazed at the idols you see. What you are searching for out there, if you look within, you yourself are it. Well, Rumi's work, especially his Mesnavi, six volumes, is an encyclopedia of spiritual wisdom.
touches on every aspect of life and every stage of the spiritual journey. What we're experiencing this afternoon is just uh, some hints about it. Some simple things, some practical things, I hope. But also, as you can see, he's pointing to something ineffable and yet immensely powerful. Something incredibly subtle and even unknown and yet immensely important. Sometimes he turns all conventional knowledge on its head because he understands that the way the ego sees the world is not the truth. The ego is usually interested in its own survival. It wants to control, typically. It wants to have everything its way. Of course, we don't say that the ego kill the ego or that the ego will ever be lost. In Sufism, the ego is transformed through, through several, actually seven stages according to one map so that the ego becomes, moves from being like a, a compulsive slave of one's own inner desires, fears, uh, etc up through various stages into more and more presence, consciousness, till one realizes one's intimacy of that self with the divine. And I love the way even Arabi put it uh, when he said, my journey was entirely within myself. And when I came to the presence of my Lord, I saw that I, this provisional, I-ness, I saw that I was nothing but servanthood without a trace of lordship. With God is all the agency. The mystic who comes that close to the divine sees that everything that we are is sourced in the divine. Our love, our intelligence, our generosity, our patience, our courage, all of it is sourced, all the best qualities of human being are sourced in the divine and that's what we're trying to get to. And the way to get there sometimes involves a reversal of the way the ego sees the world. So Rumi's message can be very challenging. Some of it is very encouraging. Some of it is really say, rah, rah, you guys can do it. You are beautiful. You know, you have God's support. You yourself are the melody and he's playing that melody. But along the way there are difficult truths to face. Here are some examples of that strange reversal of conventional ego values. Rumi says, conventional opinion footnotes such as you see in social media, lots of, and in the outer world everybody has an opinion, eight billion opinions about one thing in the world. Conventional opinion is the ruin of our souls, something borrowed which we mistake for our own. Ignorance is better than this. 
clutch at madness instead. Always run from what seems to benefit yourself. Sip the poison and spill the water of life. Revile those who flatter you. Lend both interest and principle to the poor. Let security go and be at home amidst dangers. Leave your good name behind and accept disgrace. I have lived with cautious thinking for so long. Now I'll make myself mad. This is dangerous thinking, dangerous to the ego, but also dangerous to anyone, uh, perhaps, who hasn't done some practical work, who hasn't uh, developed a, an, a self, an integrated self, and has learned to, to be functional in this world, to be of service in this world, so I want to say, don't jump to this too quickly. This sounds like the best thing I've read so far today. Uh, go back, please. Let's start from the beginning again. Uh, simple things need to be learned before you get to this. And yet this is also the truth. It's the truth of a very high stage. It's the truth of uh, allowing the divine to live your life allowing the divine intelligence to rid you of all fears. Here's another passage. I don't expect most of us to really understand much of this, but maybe little sparks will fly here and there. O sea of bliss, O you who have stored transcendental forms of consciousness in the heedless. You have stored a wakefulness in sleep. You have fastened dominion over the heart to the state of one who has lost his heart. You conceal riches in the lowliness of poverty. You fasten the necklace of wealth in poverty's iron collar. Opposite is secretly concealed in opposite. Fire is hidden in boiling water. A delightful garden is hidden in Nimrod's fire. Income multiplies by giving and spending so that Muhammad, the king of prosperity, has said, O possessors of wealth, Generosity is gainful trade. Riches were never diminished by charity. In truth, acts of charity are an excellent means of increasing one's wealth. So, he sums it all up by saying, 
O you who have transmuted a clod of earth into gold and another into the father of mankind, your generous work is the transmutation of essences. My work is mostly forgetfulness and mistakes. Transmute my mistakes and forgetfulness into knowledge. With my imperfect nature, turn me into patience and forbearance. He says, my turban, my robe, and my head, all three are appraised for less than a dirham. Have you not heard of my universal fame? I am nobody, nobody, nobody. So I said at the beginning, this is not a self-help project, except at a certain stage, perhaps. It is the work of God. It is the completion of the human being, which only God can do. But we have to cooperate. And we have to recognize our need. Rumi says, the universe was created for satisfying needs. And that's not indulgent narcissism. He reminds us, most people have little mousy needs. Make your need something noble. Increase your need. Don't ask for water, ask for thirst. Create for yourself a noble need, a noble aspiration, so that God will have the pleasure of satisfying such a need. And so I leave you with an invocation, again from Rumi. O oh, you who make demands within me like an embryo. Actually, comment, they say this spiritual process is about a second birth. O oh, you who make demands within me like an embryo, since you are the one who makes the demand, make its fulfillment easy. Show the way, help me, or else relinquish your claim and take this burden from me. Since from a debtor you're demanding gold, give him gold in secret, O oh, you, the richest of kings. Still some time for questions, for conversations. I'd like to know what's in your heart. We have a microphone available uh, for to hear these voices. Better use it because it's a stretch.
This is the truth, the final truth, and probably of a high level to reach. Uh, first, we need to learn basics. Can you just speak a bit more about basics that you're putting into What are the basics? Well, you know, it's all based on remembrance of God in our tradition, Vikrala. So how do you remember God? Many ways. But the essence of it is to awaken your heart to know and remember at this time that we are in the presence of the Divine and that this is a purposeful existence. And so it can begin with gratitude, but it begins, it also is supported by consciousness. Um, and by a kind of awareness that we call presence. In a way, the first stage is presence. And we're talking really basic, but very important. Basic, but not easy. What we mean by presence is a state of awareness that can comprehend all at once our feeling, our thinking, our, our behavior, our sense impressions. And within that presence, suddenly, you're no longer just reactive, or no longer just following our egos or reacting to impacts. No, we begin to begin to have a perspective on our own ego. We begin to uh, live and be, be live from a, and sustain a self-awareness that can encompass and truly see ourselves, so without judgment, even with mercy. And if we can dwell in that presence long enough, if we can sustain it and, and deepen in it, something begins to open up in that presence. We begin to see that what we thought was our presence, in fact, is sourced in an infinite presence. And that is a true remembrance, when we see that this capacity to be awake, to be in the state of presence, in fact, is flowing to us from divine presence. And then we feel grateful for that, and then we feel we want to return that, that gift. So this is an outline of what we're talking about. But, you know, there are teachers of the way, there are practices, and, and uh, sometimes, by the way, sometimes the best of those teachers are the least known. There is a practical work here. And, okay, let me add, are you a Muslim? Are you a Muslim? Yeah. Okay, I assumed you were. So. Um, but just to answer your question, I'll, I'll say this, as a Muslim, there's something important to understand. And I'll talk about this more tomorrow in the session on holistic Islam. That you can understand your whole religion, well, no, not your whole, not... You can understand the, the basics of practice within Islam as a spiritual training system when you understand its true purpose. Then you will understand the inner meaning of these practices and won't be doing it out of some fear that you're going to be punished uh, or as some kind of bargain or business with God to earn God's love. You'll see it as a process for transforming yourself. Those are also basics for a Muslim.
So, could you restate the question in like one sentence? I think I understand it, but I want to. Um, what difference does it make uh, on two spirituality, uh, eating uh, just as much as you do halal, and eating halal and veggie food, and yeah. organic food versus non organic food? Yes. What effect has your soul and your spirituality in your Yes. <clears throat> well, when we eat food, we're taking in vibrations. It's not just something material. So the idea of halal is that it is something that has been uh, produced according to spiritual laws. When it's truly halal, and who can say what is truly halal, that's a whole other question. Um, I would say to be truly halal, you know, the animal needs to be raised under humane conditions, not just slaughtered with a recording of the fatiha. Uh, you know, grass-fed, organic, all these things would go into it, ideally. But also, very important is that the food be prepared with love. That the, the love of a mother uh, going into the food is, is something very powerful. So we just need to know that we're taking in not just something material, some, but, but something that has an a energetic quality as well. So paying attention to food and not eating junk food and not eating unconsciously and, and uh, this is also very important. I'm glad that a young lady like yourself is thinking about these things. My Murshid was a cook and in our, our Mevlevi tradition the training is done in the kitchen. Really. We have a big kitchen and traditionally and so we call the process of spiritual training being cooked. Our brother here. Speak a little slower. It appeared that some science and some spirituality disappeared over the course of last seven, six, seven years from some of the studies after. How do we divide that? Because the focus is very much on the touristic version rather than the true spiritual. Yes, yes. Yes. You know, a very important question and many ways to answer that, but I would say this, the problem has arisen because of people's concept of the divine. Some people think of the divine as a policeman, or as an accountant, or as a military officer, or as a judge and punisher. So people reflect their own egoism in their concept of the divine. And um, as you can sense 
from these selections from Rumi that his conception of the divine is that there's nothing that we need more than a relationship with this divine beauty and generosity. Um, and so his relationship with the divine was a relationship of intimacy. Rumi says it this way, and by the way, there are many different levels of understanding and, and it's all okay in the great divine plan. There's a reason for everything. God needs his armies. God needs his policemen. God needs his marching bands. God needs his businessmen. And God also has his friends who he's invited to a generous feast. Try to be one of those friends. And also Rumi says elsewhere that the, there's an intimacy with the divine, that there's an adab with the divine. And for the lovers, the adab is not a, it is not a state of fear. Fear is not a very good, uh, it doesn't give very good access to the divine. I'm not talking about a, a righteous fear of making a mistake, like doing harm and being negligent. We should fear that. But to be living in a state of fear, as if the divine is the punisher, throws us back into the reptilian brain, the fight or flight mentality. This is not, this is not, does not lead to the divine. Even the mammalian brain, you know, we have these different levels of the brain. And then we have the beyond the brain. We have the subtlety of knowing, uh, the, the, the nuanced, uh, refined capacity of the human being to know uh, the divine intimately. That's what we're trying to awaken in ourselves. So this moralizing has its purpose sometimes, and uh, sometimes striking fear into people who are uh, cruel and evil. You know, okay, fear is good for that. You should have a fear of God if you're a murderer. If you are a tyrant, yeah, you ought to fear God. Because the cries of the innocent reach to the throne of God. Um, but they're lovers. And uh, that's the word, that's the awliya. The wali is, is the one who is intimate with God. The one who is near to God. Um, and... That is the word for saint in our tradition, isn't it? Wali means the one who is near, who has removed the barriers, who has removed the, the uh, false conceptions. Is this a 50-minute session? Are we ready? Or shall we go into a five? What's the time frame here? We have time for one more question. Time for one more question. Yeah. One more question. Okay. Uh, salam. Thank you. Alaikum salam. Today, um, I, I understand that there is a, a saving that God sends sickness to His favorites, which is very hard for the West to understand. Say it again, please. My understanding is that there is a saying in the Middle East that God sends sickness to his favorites, which is very hard for the West to understand. But to go back to how you opened your talk about the 
the uh, apparent confrontation with the modern technologies and some genders are very difficult to understand at this time. Do you see um, what we've been talking about in Rumi's approach of love and the rich tradition of Sufi healing has um, a great place in all of the turbulence of the world events at this time? This is a world that needs to be healed, absolutely. And while we wouldn't focus, we wouldn't preach that sickness is a favor of God. We don't really like to say that. But for the one who is sick, for the one who's dealing with that suffering, to know that there is mercy in it is vital. To know that uh, Allah has attributes of wrath and attributes of mercy. But the mercy prevails even in those events that seem to be wrath. It's just the outer coating of wrath. There's always a mercy within. So in, in every human challenge and travail, uh, we should seek the mercy and we should seek the benefit. And Prophet, peace be upon him, prayed in this way. He, he said so often, he said, he would enter a new town and he would say, may Allah uh, 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 protect me from the evil here, but let me receive the benefit here. So he prayed that way. May we be protected from evil, from suffering, from heedlessness, and may we receive the benefit of every moment of life. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. I would just like to thank everyone for come, uh, coming to this uh, panel discussion of Rumi and the mystery of being human. Um, we do, in the ATC, we have a stand set up with your books if you'd like to go down and do a book signing for everyone. Okay. So you. everyone can follow along with that. Yeah. Uh, if everyone would like to exit through the doors at the back, because we do have a 15 minute turnaround. So thank you very much. And may I say one more thing? I forgot to, to pitch. Uh, an app that we developed, which is called HeartSpace. And this is a Sufi app. You can uh, be, receive reminders from Rumi, from Hadith, from Quran. There are guided zikrs, contemplations, and some other beautiful things. It's called HeartSpace. You might like it. Thank you very much.